Well, good morning. Uh, it's a privilege to open God's Word with you. We have spent the month looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, and I love to teach the Bible. I love to, to walk through the Scriptures with people. Any, any opportunity that I have to open the Bible with other people is something that I really enjoy doing. Now, unfortunately, there are some times that you have to do things that you don't want to do, and an example of that is a couple of weeks ago, I had to go to the dentist. Uh, so, you know, I don't know, there may be some of you out there that just really enjoy going to the dentist. I don't really know who you are, and I don't know what's wrong with you, but I do not enjoy going to the dentist. I think I was traumatized as a child or something, uh, and I, I don't want to go, but I'm, I'm a grown-up. You got to do things you don't want to do sometimes. And so a couple of weeks ago, I went to the dentist, and one of the things that I learned is that if you will just do what the dentist tells you to do, your experience there will be so much better. Uh, that that if you already don't want to be there, it'll be a better time if you'll just do what they told you to do. And so the, the uh, hygienist asked me, she said, do you brush and do you floss? Yes, I do. Well, she's like, well, when do you brush? In the morning and in the evening. And then even more skeptical than that, she goes, when do you floss? Hey, I floss every night. And when I say that, she is, she is just flabbergasted. Nobody flosses every night. And she, she's kind of, she's just praising me at how great a job, how great a person I am for flossing my teeth every single night. She just can't believe it. And I had to set her straight. I was kind of joking because when I'm uncomfortable and anxious, I just make jokes. But also, uh, I, I just had to set the record straight. I'm not really that great of a person. I'm not that disciplined of a person. Um, the reason, the reason why is because if I will do my best job and I will do what they are telling me to do, I know I already don't want to be there. So if I'll do what they say, uh, I'll have a better experience when I'm there. And then I told her, it's fear-based flossing is what it is. <laughs> and she, she laughed and she thought it was funny. Uh, I, I wasn't joking. I was dead serious. It's fear-based flossing. But that, that whole thing just really points at something that uh, I think the scriptures are showing us this morning. And, and it's this, we, we obey the one we fear. We obey the one we fear. And fear really has a way of shaping our conduct and, and behavior in, in good ways and in, and in bad ways. So we're, 1 Peter chapter 1, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're wrapping up 1 Peter together and uh, Pete, uh, in this section, Peter has told us uh, who, who we are, who God is. He, he's explained to us the, the circumstances we find ourselves in. God has caused us to be born again, and that gives us a, a living hope and a living Savior, and, and uh, we, we can hope for this inheritance of eternal life. And that our genuine faith, our faith is revealed to be genuine as we walk through fiery trials and difficulty. Um, and if we can make it through those, it, it, our, our genuine faith will result in glory at the end of all things. And we've learned that we are the people of God. And we are just passing through this world on our way to the new heavens and the new earth. We live in this kingdom, but we belong to another one. And so we hope towards that day when we arrive, when we receive the glory and honor and praise, the reward of eternal life. We are, we are pressing on to that day, and that's where we set our hope. 
Well, this morning we're going to look at a section of scripture. We're actually going to look, we're going to start like in the middle of a passage, which really bothers me. But we're, we're going to do that. And, and really, the section is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Uh, and in that section, you can organize it by three commands. There are three commands there that kind of give us some organization, some structure to that passage. Well, last week, we already looked at the first command in verse 13. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the next two commands there located in that section. Uh, so let's read it together. And because I can't bear it, we're going to go ahead and read verse 13. Uh, and uh, we're just not going to talk about it, okay? So look at the scriptures with me. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. God's word says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. And Father, we ask that you would open your word to us, you would open our minds to understand the scripture, but you would sow it deep into our hearts, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in that section of Scripture, there are three commands. We're going to look at the second two commands there, number two and number three. And the, the first one we're going to look at is found there in verse 15. It's be holy. Be holy. When we say that word holy, that probably brings up different connotations for different people in the room. And so very quickly, I want to show you uh, how the scriptures kind of use this word holy and the different applications of it. First of all, God is holy. You see that there in the text, as he who called you is holy, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is holy. When we say that God is holy, what we mean is that he is completely other, that there is no one like him, that he is set apart from all of creation. It's not as if God is the top of a category of things, but rather there's a category of things and he stands alone in his own category all by himself. God is holy. And then the next part of the scripture, God calls Israel to be holy. The, the people of God in the Old Testament are called to be holy. That's what's being referenced there in verse 15, verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That is a reference to the people of Israel have been redeemed out of the land of Egypt and they are on their way to the promised land. But before they do that, they make a stop at Mount Sinai where they receive the law, the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus. They receive the law there and, and Moses is up there on the mountain receiving it. Well, when, when they're up there on the mountain, God tells Moses, 
You shall be holy because I'm holy. I'm other. You be other. I'm different. You be different. I'm set apart. You be set apart. You're set apart from the nations that are around you. These people of Israel, they were living in a culture that didn't love God. They didn't know God. They didn't fear him. They didn't walk in his ways. And he said, you don't be like that. You are different. And so then he gives them laws. Exodus, Leviticus, he gives these laws to describe specifically what he means when he says be holy. And a lot of these laws really set aside and set them apart from the nations that are around them. So they have this law that the people of Israel are going to walk in. Well, then the Lord Jesus comes. And he lives a perfect life. He's crucified. And what we find the New Testament teaches is that the Lord Jesus fulfills those laws. So, so now, those laws have been fulfilled. They have accomplished their goal. It, it's over. They don't apply to us anymore. Those applied to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and now they don't apply to people who place their faith in Jesus, those of us, the new people of God. They don't apply. But yet, there is still the command in the New Testament, be holy. Just because the law is fulfilled doesn't mean you don't have to be holy. Be holy. Holy, and the New Testament even describes what that looks like. What does holiness look like? And, and so they'll say, uh, here's one way you can be other. It's with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That kind of holiness sets you apart from your culture, doesn't it? Or what about this, Romans 12? Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. You, you are set apart from your culture if that characterizes your life. That you would try. That's the only time the Bible tells us to compete in anything. Outdo one another in showing honor. Or what about Ephesians 4? Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which gives grace to the ones who hear and edifies people. That would set us apart if no unwholesome talk came out of our mouth. Or the Apostle Paul says this, flee sexual immorality. That would set us apart from our culture if we would be holy in those ways. And so Peter's command here in chapter 1 is be holy. As the people of God, be holy. Well, in these verses, I notice three things about this call to be holy. The first one the call for holiness is rooted in our identity. Now, this is the fifth sermon that we've looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, and uh, I've managed to figure out a way to include this idea of identity in every single sermon. And it's not because I think that's an important thing. I do think it's an important thing. But the reason I'm doing that is because it's in the text. It's in the text. Before Peter tells us what to do, he tells us who we are. Before he tells us what to do, he tells us who we are. So in verses 1 through 12, he tells us who we are. We are the people of God. And in verses 14 and 15, he tells us again who we are. He says that we are the called, obedient children of God. We are called, obedient children. We are obedient children in verse 14. As obedient children, behold 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says that we've been born again. That is, born again into a new family. So if we are children in this new family, we want to act in ways in which our Father delights. When my kids were younger, we had to define obedience for them. We had to define obedience. We would tell them to do something and they wouldn't do it. Or, or they would do it with a little bit of attitude. One of these, he'd give you one of those. Or we would ask them to do it and they would, uh, they would find a way to kind of sort of do it and have all these explanations about why they didn't do this part or that part and have all these excuses. And so we had to define obedience for them and I think we got this from somewhere, but obedience is doing what we say with a happy heart all the way right away. A happy heart all the way, right away. So when you know you're an obedient child of God, when you know what God wants you to do in a certain situation, obedience is a happy heart all the way, right away. Not simply out of duty, out of delight. Not part of the way with nuance and wiggle room and, and uh, uh, excuses. And not delayed obedience. As obedient children be holy. Well, not only does he call us obedient children, he also says that uh, we are the ones God has called. He has called us there in verse 15 as he who called you. He is the one who has called us. He's, he's got his mind back in the Exodus again. And God, God rescued the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt This is described in the book of Hosea. The prophet Hosea speaks, and God speaks through Hosea, and he says, out of Egypt I called my son. So he he uses this language to describe uh, the people of Israel as his son, and he says, out of Egypt I called them. It's not that he picked up the phone and gave them a ring. What what it means is, is that he called them out. By, by his powerful word, he rescued them out. He redeemed them from their bondage. You likewise, believer in Jesus, you likewise have been called by God. Now, sometimes we use this word called and we think that it means like my calling in life, my job or my life's purpose. This is my calling. And that's all fine, but that's not the way the Bible uses the word called. That's not the way Peter uses the word called at all. Uh, He speaks of calling uh, there in chapter 2. He says that God has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That's what he's done. That's his calling. He says a little bit later, he says that you have been called to suffer unjustly. As a believer in Jesus, that is God's calling on your life, that you would suffer for righteousness' sake. And then a little bit later in chapter 3, he says, you've been called that when people speak against you and they curse you and they revile you, you've been called to bless them in return. That's what you've been called to. So this idea of calling here in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that God has called you out of Egypt. You, you, You were in Egypt. You were in bondage. And he has called you out. You were were slaves to sin and death. And God has called you out unto salvation. It's rooted in identity, this command to be holy. It's, It's rooted in identity. That's an important thing for us to point out. I have to emphasize this. Grace precedes command. 
Grace precedes command. Yes, the command is be holy, but your membership among the people of God is not based on whether you're able to be holy enough. That's not how this works. There is is no child that that loses their membership in their family because of wrong behavior. Now, you might want to kick your kid out of the family, like you might sign up for that. You, you, could, you could fill out legal documents to get, get a child out of the family. Like, you could actually do that legally and with documents. But you can't change their DNA. You can't change the fact that there's family blood running in their veins. So the command isn't be holy so that God will want you or be holy so that God will keep you around. That's not the, that's not the command. The, the command is he calls you He wants you. You are his child. So why would you not be holy? Be holy. That's the command. So the call for holiness is rooted in identity. The second thing that I notice about the call for holiness is the call for holiness contrasts with former ignorance. He says there in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, this looks like another command. It actually isn't a separate command. This is actually a a participle that, that, uh, that shapes and frames and gives us some context for the command, be holy. So be holy, well, one of the ways that you're going to be able to do that is by uh, not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Here's what that means. The people of Israel, they were leaving Egypt. And And the Egyptians, they didn't love God. And they, they had a worldview that directed their behavior and their conduct. God says, you can't be like that. You're different. Well, they were going to Canaan. And the Canaanites lived in, in Canaan. And they had a worldview that directed their action, their conduct, their behavior. And God says, you can't be like that. You can't be like them. As a matter of fact, the, the audience, Peter's audience, it, it probably had some Gentiles in it. People who, who used to be kind of irreligious, they, they practiced all sorts of wickedness and debauchery and immorality. That's their, that's their former way of thinking. Maybe there were some Jews here or some really religious people, and they knew, like, if I keep X, Y, and Z, then, then God will accept me. But if I don't keep X, Y, and Z, then he'll reject me. And they have this religious way of thinking, but that's their former way of thinking. That was their former ignorance. They didn't know better. But now, now, you belong to Jesus. Now you know better. Now you've prepared your mind for action. You are sober-minded. And now this ignorance about what God requires of us is, is former. That's the thing about former ignorance. It's former. You, you don't get to say, I didn't know, because now you do know. You act on, on what you know. I want you to notice one other thing about this statement here. It's passive. Do not be conformed. Not do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed. I think think that's important. I think what it's saying is don't continue to be shaped by the things that shapes the world around you. What shapes the world around us? Social media, 
all the Netflix subscriptions. You, you used to have like cable, and so cheaper now you have like 30 subscriptions that is actually more expensive. Those are the things that shape you. The, the people that you interact with, the people that you love and care about, the people that you interact with on a daily basis, your coworkers, your family members, those are the things that shape us. What's being said here is don't let the priorities and values of this present world infiltrate your priorities and your values. That's a very difficult thing to do. We are immersed. We are immersed. And you know, it's like a, a river that's running next to this hillside and there's a rock there. Eventually that rock's just gonna get worn down. And you consume enough of that stuff, it's gonna shape you. Peter says, don't let it happen. Don't be shaped by what shapes them. The call for holiness contrasts with former ignorance. Third, the call for holiness is comprehensive. He says in verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. In all your conduct. That doesn't just mean read your Bible and pray and come to church and don't say bad words. That, it means that, but that's not all that it means. It says in all of your conduct. Be holy, be other, be separate in all of your conduct, in the things you say, but also the way that you say them. In the activities that you choose to participate in, be holy. Be holy in the way that you treat your family. Be holy in the way you do your job. Be holy as you try to find this like thing called work and home balance. Be holy. Be separate. Be other. Don't be like the world. Be holy in what you say yes to. Be holy in what you say no to. Be holy. Be other. Be different. Be holy in the way that you use social media. Be holy in the way that you, you choose to let your mind dwell on things. Be holy in what those things are. Be holy in the way that you spend your money. Anything that you can think of is on the table. Be holy. So we, we spent a few minutes kind of unpacking what that means, but at the end of the day, what does it mean to be holy? It means obey God. Obey God. It's really that simple. Now, here at Central, we, we preach grace, we emphasize grace, that we are saved by grace through faith. That we are we are justified, not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. We believe that. That is our only hope. That is the only way this whole thing works. But, but once justified, once saved, should we just keep on sinning because God will forgive me anyway? Like the Apostle Paul in Romans, by no means. By no means. But why? Why? You obey the one you fear. You obey the one you fear. Look at the next command in verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, here it is, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Be fearful, he says. 
Uh, When he says the time of your exile, he's referring to we are on a journey. This world is not our home. We are on our way to the new heavens and the new earth. So the time that you spend your life on this planet, however long you live, that is your exile. Throughout that time, he says, be fearful. That doesn't sound right, does it? (laughs) That doesn't sound like that belongs in the Bible. You know, uh, you probably have seen a devotional or, or, or something that says, you know, there are 365 commands of do not fear in the Bible, one for every day of the year. And that, you know, that's close to true. And God doesn't want us to be fearful people. As a matter of fact, our sermon series for, uh, for December, for Christmas, is Fear Not. We're going to look at all of the times in the Christmas story where it says fear not. We, are, we already have Christmas planned. We're like Walmart. It's not even Halloween yet, and we've got Christmas just ready to go. Fear not, the Bible tells us. But here's the thing. There's plenty of times in the Scripture where it actually says the opposite. Be afraid. You should be fearful. And so how, how do we make that work? I, I think like this. Fear isn't bad as long as fear is in the right place. Fear isn't bad as long as fear is in the right place. Like, I shouldn't be afraid of a fire in my backyard in the fire pit, but I should be afraid of a fire in my living room because we don't have a fireplace, right? As long as fear is in the right place, it, it can be a good thing. As a matter of fact, Jesus says this. He says, don't fear the ones who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Great, fear not. And then he says, I'll tell you who you should fear. You should fear the one that can take body and soul and take it to hell. That's who you should fear. So in the same breath, he says, don't be afraid, but you should be afraid. See, fear is not necessarily wrong as long as you have it in the right object. That's fear. What is fear? What is the fear of the Lord? That's what's in view here, the fear of the Lord. It's more than respect. It's more than reverence. To fear the Lord is to adjust your conduct according to his will. You are someone who fears the Lord when you adjust your conduct according to his will. The uh, the book of Proverbs tells us at the very beginning. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then it gives us a whole lot of ways to be wise in our conduct, in our speech, in the way that we think. When we fear the Lord... We conform our conduct according to his will. When we, when we obey the Lord, it is evidence that we fear him. So do you fear the Lord? Are you a God-fearer? How do you know? Do you obey him? Do you obey him? Well, the rest of these verses answer this question, but why should we be fearful, though? Why, why should we fear the Lord? Well, verse 17 gives us the first reason, and and it's identity again, but not our identity, actually the identity of our Father. In verse 17, it says, if you call on him as Father who judges. You see, our Father is the judge. Our Father is the judge, and knowing that our Father is the judge should motivate us to live in the fear of the Lord, unless we think, you know, I've got an inside track. Dad's on the bench. I got, I, I've got this. I'm good. Peter says he judges impartially and according to each one's 
deeds. That means he doesn't let things slide. That means he doesn't allow for wickedness from his children just because they're his children. He doesn't allow it. That he will call everyone to account. Yes, your father is the judge, but he is impartial. He calls it like he sees it. So listen to me right now, in this room, right now. If you are walking in willful disobedience against the Lord, you need to know, if you say, I'm a believer, but I'm walking in in this disobedience and I kind of don't care, you need to know that your father is the judge and he doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug and pretend like it's not there. He doesn't giggle at it and think it's funny. He is the judge and he is impartial. He sees it, he knows, and he will call everyone to account. Your father is the judge and we should be fearful. Here's the second reason why we should be fearful. You should be fearful because of what it costs to save us. That's announced in verses 18 and 19. You should be fearful knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You should fear because of the cost of your redemption. He uses this word redeem or, or ransom. The, the idea, we're back to the Exodus again. That's where Peter's mind is right now, the Exodus. The, the scriptures say in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says that the Lord redeemed Israel from Pharaoh with his mighty hand. He redeemed them. That means he paid whatever it cost to take them up and make them his own. He paid it. He redeemed them. He ransomed. Peter says, here, you likewise were redeemed and ransomed from an enemy. But it wasn't Egypt. It wasn't Pharaoh. It was your sin. It was your your feudal ways. It was your former ignorance. It was your wickedness that you could do nothing about. You were in bondage, and he paid the cost to redeem you and to call you his own. He paid it. And what was the cost? What was the price? of this redemption. It tells us right here, it says it's the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The people of Israel, they were, they, they were getting ready to head to the promised land, but they had to escape first. And the night of the Passover, the only way that they could survive the night of the Passover, the only way that the destroyer would pass over their house was if they took the blood of an unblemished lamb and they put it on the doorpost of their home. And then the destroyer passed over and they survived. Peter says in the same way you were ransomed by the blood of an unblemished lamb, but it wasn't some animal that you kept in your backyard. No, you you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Peter's argument here is that you should be fearful because you know what it costs to save you. You should tremble knowing that your deliverance was secured by the death of Jesus. We needed to be saved from our sins. We had no other hope. We had no chance. And Jesus gave everything. He gave every part of himself to save us. And so we should be afraid. We should be afraid not because God might change his mind. 
not because God might look at our, our, our wickedness or, or ways that we have failed and, and, and give up on us. No, here's what we should be afraid of. We should be afraid of treating the blood of Jesus like it's dirt. We, we should be afraid of living our lives in such a way that we spit on the sacrifice of Jesus. We obey the one we fear. We aim to please the one we fear. And here's the deal. I think a lot of our problem, all of us in this room, I think of a lot of our problem is our fear is misplaced. We are afraid. We are fearful of man. We care so much about what other people will say or what other people will do that we, we are afraid of man. And Peter says later in chapter 4, he, he says, there's going to be some that are going to, they're going to cause you to suffer because you're righteous. Have no fear of them. In other words, don't let, don't let that pressure cause you to not obey God. Have no fear of them, but you should fear God. Look, don't fear them because they don't judge you. The Father does. Don't fear them because they didn't give you anything. And Jesus gave you everything. That's who you should fear. So this morning, we're going to turn to the Lord's Supper and we're going to consider the cost of our redemption. And in so doing, we're going to come to the table with fear. We observe the image of the body and the blood of Christ. In the bread, we observe his body, the, the whippings and the beatings and the, the scourgings. In the blood, we remember his hands and his feet and his brow and his side, the blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We were the ones in bondage. It should have been my body broken for me. It should have been my blood poured out for my sin. But Jesus, the Son of God, he took my place. So we're going to take this Lord's Supper together here in a minute. We're going we're to sing a song first. But, but I'm inviting you to, as we do this, Approach with a mindset of fear. Not fear that God will strike us down. Not, not fear that we'll do something and that'll make God undo his love for us. But rather the fear of walking in such a way that we spit on the body of Jesus and we stomp on his blood. So this morning, yes, let us remember. That's the Lord's Supper. Let us remember. Let us honor let us revere, but let us honor and revere by being holy. And then let us truly believe. Listen to me. It really is true. You can believe it with all your heart. You can find the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. His blood paid the penalty so that you can be completely forgiven. You really can. So let us believe as we do this together. Let's pray.